hello and welcome to this Latrobe Asia event uh, where we are going to launch uh, the book, the Melbourne launch for the book, The Xinjiang Emergency, uh, which James is very helpfully holding up here. Uh, I'm Beck Striding. I'm the director of Latrobe Asia uh, at Latrobe University. And it's very, it's terrific to be here. Uh, it's great to see people uh, in the room with us and it's also fantastic uh, to be joined uh, by people who are, who are coming in uh, online as well. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which La Trobe University sits and I would like to pay my respect to elders past and present and extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians who might be joining us today. And part of our role at La Trobe Asia is to try and deepen our understanding of uh, our Asian region and it's a great honour to be contributing to the Melbourne launch uh, of this book Xinjiang Emergency which is being published by Manchester Un uh, University Press. So this book aims to contribute to our understandings of detention in Xinjiang and how it's perceived within and beyond China. So it's my great pleasure to be joined uh, this evening uh, by our two guests, Dr. Michael Clark, who is a senior fellow at the Centre for Defence Research at the Australian Defence College and an adjunct professor at the Australian-China Relations Institute uh, at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome, Michael. It's great to see you in Melbourne. Uh, and you are the editor of the book that we are celebrating this evening. Uh, and we are also delighted to be joined by a very good friend of La Trobe Asia, Professor James Leibold, uh, who is uh, in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University, and who is a contributor uh, to the book that we are celebrating this evening. So welcome to you, James. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here. So there will be time for Q&A uh, later on in this session. Uh, so I encourage you to keep your questions or those of you who are viewing online, please feel free to put your questions in the Q&A box as we go. Uh, but I'm going to start by pitching uh, a broad question to you, Michael. I'm hoping that you might begin the conversation by providing some context about the current situation in Xinjiang. What do we know about the treatment of the Uyghur uh, Muslim min uh, minority in Xinjiang and China's policies towards them? Great, thank, thank you, Beck, and thanks to La Trobe Asia for, for putting, putting on this event, and thanks for people tuning in uh, online. Um, so in terms of providing a, a bit of context, I think, I suppose, it's really a bit of an update about where we are right now, and I think there's really three broad things that we can touch upon. Um, one is the issue of mass detention uh, and imprisonment. So what we've seen over the last few years is, in fact, sort of a transition that's been occurring within the mass detention system in Xinjiang, we actually have people, large numbers of people now being sentenced to, uh, to, the, to the normal prison system within Xinjiang, or else being put into different forms of detention. So we actually haven't seen a phasing out of mass detention, it's just new iterations uh, thereof. And what's interesting there is, in fact, and this is something that um, researchers like Adrian Zenz and, and others have looked at, is actually transitions towards new forms of detention and internment where you have coerced or forced labour along with uh, forced population transfers uh, as well. And that's something that maybe we'll touch on a bit deeper as well later on. The second core theme as well, or issue I think that needs to be stressed in terms of the current situation in Xinjiang is that there's been no let up in terms of the surveillance state that's been imposed in Xinjiang uh, really uh, since, since since 2016, if not before. Um, so there's been no let up in terms of the ways in which uh, the surveillance apparatus really penetrates everyday life uh, to sort of the granular level. And there's lots of examples uh, of that that have, that have certainly come out anecdotally, but also in terms of uh, researchers' evidence. And some of that's in, 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 the, in the book. In fact, Darren Byler's chapter is a really great exploration of, of, some, of, of some of those issues around surveillance. So I think the third main, main issue as well now is, is, is where to? Uh, where's this going to go? 
uh, in, in the coming years. And like I said at the beginning, there's, there's been no let up in terms of mass internment and surveillance. So the question now becomes, will it be consolidated as a primary form of governance in Xinjiang? And I think all the signs are actually pointing yes towards that, that some of this is being institutionalised, both within uh, the way in which the party thinks and governs Xinjiang, but also sort of the nuts and bolts of how it controls society in Xinjiang. Thank you. Now, the introduction frames the, the study of repression uh, in Xinjiang in terms of a question uh, that was posed by Dr. David Broffy, who actually joined us for a podcast recording with Matt last year for Asia Rising. And the question is, how did a revolutionary state such as China that promised to end discrimination end up resorting to such horrific policies? So what reason does your book offer? Uh, in other words, what are the primary motivators for China in designing and implementing these policies, particularly the, you know, the surveillance state policies that you were just outlining before? Yeah, I mean, David's question is, is, was a great one. I think that some, it's one that sort of puzzled a lot of us um, when we first started um, hearing about some of the issues and coming out of Xinjiang. And one of the questions that really we sought to answer, I think, in, in the book, and really from, from certainly from my own perspective, and I think some of these themes are shared um, by some of the contributors, is there's really three sort of core uh, causes here, um, some of them deep and some of them perhaps more proximate if we want to think about it in that way. So in terms of the deeper cause, um, this is really the issue around colonialism and settler colonialism. So looking at the really deep roots of Chinese colonialism in Xinjiang, certainly back to the late Qing period uh, and moving through to certainly to the 20th century and, and beyond. Uh, the second core theme uh, is one that we might frame as uh, around the ideological frames that the, the Chinese Communist Party itself uses. So here we're sort of embedded in the notions of totalitarianism and thinking about the ways in which the party has used ideology as a form of mass mobilisation, but also as a, a means of surveillance and social control. And that's really a theme that I think comes through really strongly uh, in, in, in the book. And the third theme, and perhaps the most proximate one, sort of temporarily in terms of how we think about this is really the discourses and practices of the war on terror post, post 9-11. So this is important um, for a number of reasons. One is that it enabled the Chinese Communist Party uh, to, to establish a sort of justificatory rhetoric uh, around its repression in Xinjiang. Um, and additionally, we've seen this morph into a number of different phases. So one, and this is something that Sean Roberts in the book has spoken of and also detailed elsewhere, is the development of a kind of a, a racialized politics of exception in Xinjiang, where the party state sees something inherently dangerous or, or deviant or abnormal uh, about Uyghur identity um, that is at the root cause of insecurity in Xinjiang. And this is the issue that needs to be, to be resolved if Xinjiang has to be secure and if China is also to achieve Xi Jinping's China dream. Another core issue um, in terms of the war on terror is also the way in which it interacts with new forms of militarised surveillance, uh, counterterrorism policy and practices. Uh, and this is, of course, something that's not uh, isolated to, Sin to Xinjiang or China, of course. Um, but the Chinese case, I think, is quite unique, where you have the Chinese state actively involved in heavy investment with Chinese tech companies around particular forms of surveillance, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and so on, that have been very much utilised in the surveillance state in Xinjiang. I'm hoping that we might be able to uh, dig into some of those concepts a little bit further. And later on, I will ask you about uh, the US war on terror, uh, because that, I think, is a really interesting way of thinking about what's going on in Xinjiang and how these actions can be justified by the state. Uh, but just for now, I mean, your book draws on colonialism, settler colonialism, state development as these um, explanatory factors. So I'm wondering if you can explain to us how these concepts are useful in thinking about cultural genocide uh, as, a, as a policy and as, as a practice in, in China. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the issue of colonialism and settler colonialism is certainly a core theme, certainly in my, my introductory chapter, and it's something that others touch upon as well um, th throughout the book. Really, the starting point here is to see some, some, some problematizing, if you will, uh, about the nature of the PRC. You know, it's somewhat controversial to, in certain circles, to suggest that the PRC is kind of a colonial state or imperial or, or settler colonial state. But if we look at um, the history, certainly from the late Qing period onwards, it's very clear that you have very strong colonial and settler colonial themes. And in this context, um, certainly in my, my, my opening chapter to the book, I really distinguish between different forms of, or, or, or highlight the distinction between colonialism and settler colonialism. So colonialism, how it's sort of classically understood, is essentially the domination of uh, sort of a peripheral or overseas territory by, by a metropole. So in this context, that doesn't necessarily have direct parallels to Xinjiang. However, if we think about settler colonial societies, such as Australia, uh, North America, uh, and elsewhere, where you actually have uh, settlers uh, coming to take over uh, and, and exploit resources of a particular territory. And this is a theme that is very strong in terms of Xinjiang's history from the late Qing period onwards. Uh, and in, the, in the, um, the opening chapter to the book, I really focus in on the sort of transition point, uh, certainly from my perspective, that occurs really from at the end of the Qing dynasty and the early 20th century, where this, there's a tra clear transition in the way in which uh, the Chinese state thinks about its relationship to Xinjiang. So it's no longer seen as kind of a peripheral buffer zone, if you will, um, but now it's actually seen as being exploitable, um, but it's only going to be exploitable and contribute to the well-being of the Chinese state if it actually becomes more Chinese, demographically, culturally, and in, in some ways uh, geographically. And, and we actually look at, and we actually see this process over the 20th century uh, with the way in which the PRC in particular has attempted to integrate Xinjiang. So this is where there's a linkage with those themes of state building. So the way in which the PRC is heavily invested in infrastructure development, for instance, to tie Xinjiang much more tightly to the rest of China, encouragement, uh, both direct and indirect, of Han Chinese settlement uh, of Xinjiang as well. Um, so through this transition, you also have a transition in the way in which the indigenous populations are thought of and treated. And I think this is where you have this intersection with settler colonialism and genocide or potential forms of cultural genocide. Um, because if you think about, again, parallels with other settler colonial societies, the indigenous other actually becomes in some ways peripheral to the settler colonial entity itself in terms of its reproduction, its ability to, um, to consolidate territory, to consolidate power, exploit resources. So here you have this slide where the indigenous other in some cases becomes almost immaterial to the process. Uh, and so uh, Lorenzo uh, Berenciani is a scholar um, who's written a number of uh, important books on settler colonialism makes that particular distinction. Uh, and Patrick Wolfe as well, a scholar of Australia's settler colonial past sort of says, well, the outcome for the indigenous other here is, is not great, right? There is there's essentially a pathway here towards eradication, whether it's physical or whether it's cultural. Uh, and so I sort of end my introductory chapter with sort of raising this question, saying, well, actually, uh, this is, is this what we're seeing in Xinjiang at the moment? We're not seeing physical eradication, but we're certainly seeing a very systematic effort at the cultural remoulding or transformation, if you will, of Uyghur identity. Now, James, I might turn to you. Thank you for joining us. You've just got back from the US, so we're very grateful that you've managed to make the time. But uh, your chapter with Timothy Gross outlines some fairly horrific treatment of individuals who are, have been identified by the Chinese Communist Party as a threat to social order. Uh, can you take us through what your research has found? Yes, yeah, sure, Beck. And apologies if I'm not as coherent as usual. Uh, because I did uh, just get off a plane not too long ago um, from the US. Um, yeah, so in the chapter um, that Tim Gross and I co-authored in Michael's um, edited volume, um, we tried to kind of look at the, the political culture and the uh, rhetoric that informed the way in which um, Chinese officials uh, talked about um, the perceived problem um, in Xinjiang. Um, and what we saw is something that fits a kind of wider pattern of the 
kind of pathologizing of um, social deviance uh, as well as political deviance in China. So this is what, you know, you can go back historically and look at the third century BCE uh, Chinese philosopher Shunzi called uh, crooked timber that needed to be planed and straightened. Uh, Mao Zedong used the word poisonous weeds, you know, that needed to be uh, rooted up and picked out. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party really sees itself as the vanguard, uh, the shaper, the molder uh, of people, and thus it believes it has a, uh, a kind of moral and uh, political responsibility to identify deviant populations, aberrant populations, and then to correct them, to transform them um, in its own image. And, and we can see this throughout the entire history of the PRC. If we go back in the 1950s, uh, groups that were identified as aberrant were prostitutes, uh, beggars, uh, criminals, um, remnant KMT forces. Uh, we get into the 1960s during the Cultural Revolution. They're identifying people known as rightists, you know, that's sort of taken a right turn, the wrong, you know, the, the wrong direction, or capitalist rotors, or counter-revolutionaries. Uh, and then finally, even in the, in the post-Mao period, during the reform and opening up period, other groups were identified, Falun Gong being a prominent one, but also, uh, uh, you know, splittists, whether they be Tibetans or Uyghurs, uh, as, as well as other uh, groups that are seen uh, as uh, not only disloyal, but, but socially kind of deviant and, and, and backward. Um, and uh, in you know, the way we try to look at the mass internment of Uyghurs and other Muslims in Xinjiang is to see this as a, just another uh, group that has been identified by the Chinese state as being harmful to the social fabric uh, of China. But as Michael pointed out, it, it's really important to see this in the global context of the war on terror and Islamophobia. You know, uh, it was easier to identify the Muslim other as you know, a kind of fanatical uh, madman that needed to uh, be, uh, be uh, detained, domesticated, uh, and then you know, essentially uh, transformed um, and, and, and rehabilitated. You know? um, and and um, yeah, so I, I, th I, I think that's a useful way. I mean, I think a lot of us are kind of struggling with ways to kind of make sense of what's happening. Um, in Xinjiang, uh, using comparative frameworks, settler colonialism, looking at the issues around genocide are useful ways. Uh, myself and Tim tried to look at it from a kind of Chinese political cultural standpoint uh, to, to help make sense of it for us. So my next question was going to be about the, the justification for such policies. And you've sort of touched on some of those reasons. You know, it's about um, contributing to social order. It's about sort of... Um, uh, I guess, mitigating deviance and the war on terror is something that we'll get back to. Uh, and there's clearly there's different audiences that the CCP needs to legitimate its actions to. There's the domestic, there's the international. But I'm wondering whether you can um, tell us a little bit more about the ways that the, the Chinese Communist Party seeks to explain or, or rationalise um, what's going on. Thanks, Beck. Yeah. Um... Clearly, they turn to uh, a concern about um, religious extremism. Uh, so the policy uh, was one of de-extremification. Um, there was a perception um, with some factual basis that some Uyghurs had been radicalized um, um, through, uh, largely through connections with overseas groups. There were a number of terror attacks, uh, quite horrific ones that occurred in 20, uh, 2014 uh, in Kunming, uh, as well as another one in 2013 in Beijing, as well as another uh, attack in Urumqi. Um, and, you know, this was, uh, uh, Xi Jinping essentially gave uh, the, the party secretary of Xinjiang, Chen Chengguo, a, a kind of blank uh, check uh, to, uh, to address this by first, uh, you know, launching a kind of war, what he called a people's war on terror. And then eventually, under Chen Tengguo, this mass internment uh, strategy. Um, and uh, it, unlike in the past, if, if you look at how, uh, you know, because the unrest in Xinjiang or Tibet, you know, is a longstanding problem that China's had to deal with. In the past, what they've tried to do is use a, what I've called a kind of carrot and stick approach, you know, um, to, to incentivize people to moderate the, their uh, behavior, their thinking. Um, and then kind of, you know, crack down on, on, on a small number. 
what we saw in the case of Xinjiang was really a, 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 an effort to shift towards what Xi Jinping called a, a clinch fist approach. Rather than use one hard hand, one soft hand, to just really go hard at this. And, and we know from uh, leaked, uh, leaked um, government documents that this really did come from the top, came from uh, Xi Jinping himself. Um, and you know this justification of, of uh, de-extremification, while it did have some merit, there was a kind of, uh, uh, you know, I've sometimes used the analogy, it's like trying to, you know, swat a fly, a bunch of flies with, you know, uh, a cruise missile, you know, um, quite indiscriminately. Um, and the result was that there was this, uh, you know, fear that um, in addition to those who were clearly were radicalized or were actively plotting against the party state, that there were manifestations of extremism across Xinjiang society. And, you know, the party state would go around and they would try to, I mean, there were quotas for, for people to be interned, try to f identify what are, what are indicators that someone might be radicalized, looked at things like, um, does a woman wear a hijab? Uh, does someone not drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes in public? Does someone pray? Uh, you know, does someone use the Uyghur language? Uh, the party officials began to talk about two-faced individuals. You know, someone that on you know on the public surface would support the the, the party, but you know privately would uh, would mock it or would be plotting against it. And so what you saw was this kind of this real kind of I, I don't know paranoia take place uh, that resulted in really the kind of mass internment of anywhere from you know ten to twenty percent of the the Uyghur population. Um, and so it went from a kind of de-extremification approach to really a far more uh, uh, widespread effort to transform the thought and behavior of Uyghurs and other Muslim people, as well as to transform uh, Xinjiang society, you know, building on that, that long history of settled colonialism that Michael was talking about. And your chapter uh, uses the, the concepts of pathology and deviance. And I have to confess, I, have, I haven't really read a lot about deviance since my first year of sociology back in uni. So I'm wondering whether you can um, tell us about how these particular concepts can help to help us to understand uh, first the, the approaches that the Chinese Communist Party has taken, but also whether that helps us to understand the responses of others to uh, what the Chinese Communist Party is doing in Xinjiang. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I'm not an expert of social deviance, uh, but it really came from, again, uh, reading quite carefully and closely uh, the writings of Chinese officials that we started to note uh, this use of kind of medical... Uh, terminology and, and Tim and I argue that while the Chinese party state says what's happening in these um, these re-education centers is that you know students as I refer to them are receiving vocational training um, that's the official line you know that's that's it's wheeled out publicly internationally but if you look at what party officials were saying they uh, tended to speak of these people as patients that needed urgent medical attention you know, they, 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 they had a malignant tumor or they were diseased. I mean, some of the terminology is that they would use words like, you know, that they had contracted illness or they, uh, they talked about penetrating like an uh, intravenous needle, uh, curing the sickness to save the patient, excising tumors. These are all words coming directly from Chinese officials. And I think what this um, allows the party state to do is it one to kind of justify its repression by saying there's a social disease here that you know is is in danger of you know uh, uh, of spreading you know uh, like wildfire throughout the uh, society unless it's dealt with. It also uh, allows them to target a large larger segment of the population uh, by talking about you know an outbreak you know or a, a kind of tumor that left, if left unchecked will spread you know, like, like a pandemic throughout society. And it also allows it to kind of deflect blame because uh, these are often seen as kind of uh, the, the, the pathology uh, or the disease really came through infection from overseas through hostile foreign forces or ideas that were brought in that weren't indigenous to Xinjiang. Um, and I think, and I've been thinking a lot about this, um, you know, we've all been living through COVID for the last about three years. There's, there's a lot of really interesting parallels between the way that China 
has uh, treated the COVID pandemic and the way it's dealt with um, perceived problems of social deviance uh, amongst Uyghurs and other uh, Chinese Muslims. Um, you know, there's this, this kind of danger that, that an outbreak uh, will spread like wildfire, lead to social instability. There's a need as a result to identify potential hosts there's a need to strengthen surveillance so it can be nipped in the bud. Uh, there's also a need when identified to correct, you know, to, to cure people. Um, and so again, going back to that approach that we've taken by looking at the kind of political culture, I think that helps us to kind of understand some of the parallels uh, to, you know, to make sense of what the party state is doing there. You know, that, that it, it's, it's not such, you know, a lot of people talk about this as like some kind of extraordinary uh, 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 policy. Um, and what we've argued is that actually, um, maybe on scale, you could say it's extraordinary. But even then, I would say, if you looked at um, uh, re-education through labor in the 1950s and 60s, it was on a larger scale um, throughout China. Um, and certainly, the methods are not new. They've been used before, and if anything, you know, it's helpful to kind of see the party returning to its old playbook of, you know, identifying deviant populations and seeking to then uh, transform them or cure them. Well, what strikes me about that is that it doesn't sound like the actions of a confident or well-adjusted state. This seems to me to be kind of formed from a bit of panic around disorder. Um, and maybe, Michael, I'll turn to, talk, um, turn to you, but you might be able to talk to that. But I also actually wanted to uh, ask you about what this means in foreign policy terms, uh, because I'll put my cards out on the table. One of my concerns uh, is the ways in which uh, a human rights emergency uh, in Xinjiang can be instrumentalised. Uh, particularly by people within the, the sort of the security elite that might press for a more aggressively anti-China stance uh, in Australia, but also in other states. And, um, you know, sometimes the discourses can neglect or even outright mock the concept of nuance in, in developing policies that seek to avoid interstate conflict while supporting human rights. But this is something that I think for, for people like me in international relations and, and who look at Australian foreign policy, it's a really difficult area thinking about how uh, a state like Australia and a community in Australia might be able to support human rights in Xinjiang uh, while at the same time having to negotiate with a China that is increasingly powerful uh, in our region. And that's something that we can't just push away or wish away. Um, so I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on uh, how to achieve a foreign and defence policy in Australia that balances interests and values in a way that also recognises our limits in terms of our size, but also our limits in terms of our geography. Yeah, that's a, a great question. I'll just make a quick comment though on the first point about um, the issue of you know a paranoid sort of state or mindset. Um, I think it's a, it's a really good one because if you look at, you know, uh, Jim mentioned some of the, the leaked government materials, um, some of which were published by the New York Times in, in 2019, um, and some of these documents range as far back as to 2014, so right at the beginning of this process. Um, and I've had another look at them, them recently, and it, what's striking is the way in which sort of th this theme of crisis actually permeates all of them, um, right down to... Um, uh, one of the previous provincial uh, CCP heads would, was saying to Carters, we, we, we have to acknowledge that the situation in Xinjiang is out of control. Um, we have to act now, otherwise basically everything is, is, is under threat. And it's, it's quite an interesting question to think about on a number of levels. You know, one is, did the party actually genuinely perceive a crisis or was it much more cynical uh, in, 
instead of latching on to the idea that certainly if you think about some of the, you know, the controversies about COVID and lockdowns and so on, that you can actually seize upon this notion of a quote-unquote crisis to institute sort of exceptional measures in a range of, in a range of fields. So that's a really interesting question, I suppose, to think about sort of ongoing as, as we think about some of the causes and consequences of, of the repression in, in Xinjiang. Um, in terms of the foreign policy question, I mean, this is certainly a complex um, question. Um, and certainly my thinking on this, I mean, I think, um, I suppose there's two things here. One is the sort of Xinjiang-specific angle and then the broader question about relations with China. In terms of, of Xinjiang, you know, I think the core challenge um, and one that I think the current government, Australian government, has, has failed in my view. And this is not saying that's an easy, it's an easy challenge, it's a very difficult one, uh, is one of a consistent alignment of interests and values. Um, so very clearly there's, there's a challenge here in the context of Xinjiang because the current repression is clearly starkly at odds you know, with our professed values, um, with the things that we say we care about, uh, human dignity, human rights, freedom of expression and so on. Yet these run into very substantial material constraints in terms of what Australia can practically do to affect change. Um, so where my criticism lies on, on this front is the Australian government has been relatively reactive, I'd suggest, in terms of thinking about what it can actually practically do. So we've seen action elsewhere. So for instance, uh, in the United States, you've had the passing of the, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, uh, as well as Uyghur Forced Labor Bill. So you've had some concrete responses albeit it's unilateral. And yes, there is a great power differential between, say, what the United States can do in its relationship with China as opposed to what Australia can do. But Australia's sort of advantage, well, certainly if you talk to, to a lot of people, um, scholars as well as uh, individuals in Canberra, is the great advantage supposedly of Australian diplomacy is our ability to sort of wage this kind of middle power, coalition building type arrangements. And I don't think we've seen enough evidence of that. So certainly thinking about, for instance, mobilising opinion uh, in regional forums, both in Asia itself, but also at, at the UN. Now, obviously, there are constraints with that. We've seen you know, various ways in which the, the CCP has played off the global south against the, the developed west and so on. But it, to me, there doesn't seem to have been the level of engagement or intent uh, on the part of the Australian government to do those kind of things. The issue of sort of instrumentalising the Xinjiang issue is, is, is certainly there, something that I think a lot of us have, have noticed, is that really the Australian government uses the Xinjiang issue, the, the sort of moral outrage that it causes, uh, as sort of a cudgel with which to beat China rhetorically. And look, for good cause. Uh, I fully agree with that. The issue then becomes translating that moral outrage into actual practical action. And this is where it seems to me that it all, all falls down. Um, because what has happened is you've just had the integration of the Xinjiang, Xinjiang issue into yet another sort of list of grievances, to sort of use the Chinese term, that we have against the Chinese Communist Party. It's used as simply as evidence that this demonstrates the, the malignancy of the CCP. It doesn't actually do, it, do anything for thinking about how we can address the specifics of what is happening in Xinjiang. So for instance, the connections between re-education, settler colonialism, uh, and what Darren Byler has termed terror capitalism. Um, these interlinkages between global capital and surveillance technologies and so on. So none of those issues are addressed simply by making ourselves feel better via sort of moral outrage. Thank you for that. Uh, this question came to me just because our attention is focused on Ukraine. Uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And there's been a lot of linking between uh, Taiwan and Ukraine, um, thinking about why this might matter for the Asian region. Uh, and in my view, some of the, those discussions tend to really oversimplify um, differences in political status, for one, but also geography and the interests and approaches of the two great powers, Russia and China. Um, and their expansionist intentions. So I'm wondering, uh, is there a sort of possible link between Ukraine and what is going on in Xinjiang, or are these sort of separate issues? Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, in terms of, I suppose, the way I would answer this is to sort of thinking about it, and I've written something recently about, um, about China's response to, to sort of Ukraine. 
And, and what's interesting is, you know, we've seen this kind of straddling effort by, by Jen, you know, not wanting to openly condemn uh, Russia, but also not willing to sort of damage its ties, certainly with the Europeans, um, to too, too greater an extent. Now, a lot of that, I think, is driven by the fact that certainly the Chinese can't uh, certainly be happy with uh, Russia's violation of what China claims to be one of its sort of core foreign policy principles, which is non-interference and protection of territorial sovereignty. I mean, that's clearly been violated in the case of Ukraine. And what's, I think, quite pointed in terms of the way in which perhaps uh, people in Beijing might be thinking about this is the way in which Putin has justified not only the current invasion of Ukraine, but also the annexation of Crimea back in 2014, which is on the basis of protecting ethnic Russians. So for China, this certainly, well, in the, in the immediate past, was a red flag. Um, given the fact if it's thinking about uh, ethnic minority populations on its frontiers, uh, Uyghurs in Xinjiang or Tibetans in Tibet, for instance, uh, and, the, and the potential for third outside forces to, to, to engage in those kind of interventions uh, to support them. So it's a really interesting, uh, I think, muddle that Beijing has got itself in on, on, on the Ukraine question. Um, but in terms of, of, of beyond, I suppose, that kind of concrete issue, I think there's a broader one. It sort of gets back in some ways to that issue of you know, a moral outrage uh, about Xinjiang. Uh, a lot of that moral outrage, of course, has now been directed at, at Putin and to the Russians, again, with, 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 with due cause. My concern is that the fact of what's happening in Xinjiang, of course, has been a much more slow-burning process, is that attention spans may waver given new crises such as what's occurring in Europe. And that's not to, to sort of denigrate the human suffering that's happening in Ukraine, but rather to suggest, you know, we need to actually think about these things concurrently. Um, it, it just simply, to me, it seems indeed uh, sort of a unethical or immoral not to actually be doing something about Xinjiang, given the ways in which we're claiming that we stand for particular, particular values. Thank you. I'm going to ask you, Michael, but I'm also going to raise this with you a little bit later, James. It's a question about method or <laughs> methodology, if you like, because uh, it seems that it has become increasingly difficult to study in China, perhaps nearly impossible to do field research on the ground in Xinjiang, uh, but in politics and area studies and security studies more generally, it's becoming a lot more restricted. What consequences does this pose for a state like Australia, but also other states in the region and, you know, the public in understanding China? I mean, we have a seriously consequential relationship with China. And how is it going to impact or shape our capacity to engage with, um, you know, this emerging power in our region? Yeah, that's a, it's a really important question. Um, I suppose I'll talk for myself first and then, and then maybe a little bit broadly. So in terms of um, writing and research on, on Xinjiang, um, certainly from, from, from my perspective, I think it has become harder and certainly hearing from other colleagues uh, in Australia and around the world, that sort of holds true, I think, for, for everyone. Uh, in terms of you know, contributors to, to the edited, edited book, a number of them had conducted extensive fieldwork um, as late as 2018. I think Darren Byler conducted fieldwork in, in Xinjiang. So it, is, it was still possible. Um, I, I'm not sure if it is possible now. Um, and I think this is around this issue of, you know, the, not only the situation in Xinjiang itself, but the international prominence that the issue now has. So it makes, the, I think, the, the Chinese state much more wary about controlling access um, to, to, to the region. Um, I think another important issue is the closing off of opportunities to engage with Chinese colleagues uh, and scholars and researchers as, as well. And I think that's something that a, a lot of people have felt uh, over the last, last few years. Um, certainly initially um, sort of a form of self-censorship in a way from Chinese colleagues, you know, not wanting to speak on particular issues, um, right through to almost kind of a cutting off of, of communication. Um, and I don't think that's good, certainly not good for, for us uh, in terms of thinking about um, whether it's specifically the Xinjiang issue or thinking about wider relations with China. And I, and I also think it's not good for, for China as well. Um, if we're thinking about 
China's engagement, uh, certainly uh, in decades previous with the rest of the world, have been a, has been of a great benefit to itself. It now seems to be in this process of closing itself off in a variety of ways, whether it's through these people-to-people exchanges, right through to, you know, Xi Jinping's idea of you know a dual circulation economy and turns towards sort of forms of economic autarky and so on. So I think we're facing a real a real challenge uh, in, in in that context. Do you want me to um, yes. pipe in on that one? Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that uh, Michael has said, and certainly. In my 30 years of studying China, things have changed tremendously. I first went to China in 1988 as a student. Um, last, uh, you know, I spent over a decade living in China at various different times. Most recently, in uh, two, from 2013 to 2015, uh, when I traveled extensively, uh, a couple trips to Xinjiang, a couple trips to Tibet. Um, even then, I started to realize that things were changing, you know, um, and never felt um, concerned for my personal safety except for one time in Xinjiang where I, when I was detained. Um, and you realize the limits of your power as a foreign citizen when you come face to face with the security state. Um, and subsequent to that, you know, uh, I was denied a visa to visit China in 2018. I've been told now by the uh, Australian Federal Police that not only is it safe, not safe for me to go, nor is it safe for my, my family to go, which, you know, as someone who has deep engagement with China is on a personal level uh, very concerning. Uh, but as Michael is saying as well, you're cutting off um, the ability to, uh, for Australia to, to gain in-depth uh, personal expertise about, uh, about China. Um, you know, uh, in terms of collaborations, of long, really valued collaborations I've had with Chinese colleagues, uh, many of them now are um, impossible to maintain. Um, I've had uh, colleagues that have been detained, monitored, uh, as well as intimidated by the security forces, uh, particularly uh, due to their links uh, to me. Uh, Latrobe was uh, threatened. Uh, over a research project that I was led uh, to. Uh, Aspie, uh, where I also uh, work in Canberra, uh, has been threatened lawsuits and uh, other uh, personal attacks uh, as a way of trying to silence the work that we do. Um, but I, I do still think there are, there are ways um, using open source uh, research methodologies. Uh, clearly, the book is a, a great demonstration. I mean, as as Michael pointed out, um, you know Joe Finley Smith and Darren Byler were able to do field work, but I, 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 I'd fear for the safety if they thought they could do it uh, today. Um, and one of the things that we've witnessed in in, in the documentation of the of the Xinjiang emergency is that there are other uh, other methodologies that researchers can draw upon, whether it be satellite imagery or. Um, you know, open source Chinese language sources that can help us. Not, they're not perfect. Um, they don't paint a full picture, uh, but they, if if done correctly, can actually reveal quite a bit. Um, and the other thing we've seen, of course, with the, the case of Xinjiang, is a lot of information has been leaked out um, uh, from the region. Um, and so we've got to rely on those things, but uh, they're, they're far from perfect. Um, you know what you miss by not having those kind of the, the personal links by being able to go and talk to Chinese colleagues um, is really detrimental to our understanding of China. Um, but I don't think I don't think it means that we can't know China at all. I mean, as the Chinese government will always say, you know, if you haven't been to Xinjiang, well, then you can't you don't know what's happening there. And I think that's a load of rubbish, really. Uh, and I have been to Xinjiang, so. <laughs> well, I want to dig in on, on that a little bit further because, you know, there are these sort of novel ways, I think, of researching that does, as you point to in your response, uh, it exposes researchers and analysts to arguments that can cast doubt over their research findings. Uh, and as you mentioned, you have done a lot of work for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, or ASPE, and you've co-authored a number of really influential uh, reports, uh, including Uyghurs for Sale in 2020. Uh, and there's sort of a range of criticisms that tend to emerge uh, that ASPE 
as an organisation has, you know, a kind of ideological leaning and that there are sources of funding that people can draw upon that can cast doubt over um, the legitimacy of the reports. There's also, as you point out, the use of satellite um, imagery and data um, that you can kind of extrapolate from uh, that people sort of um, suggest uh, you know, might not be um, an accurate way of reading that data. And then there's the, the issue of whether the findings have been exaggerated. There have been re reports that, that have come out, pretty sort of dodgy reports in some cases, that have sought to suggest that this is, um, that this is an exact, that it's a much smaller issue than what these reports have suggested. So um, how do you respond to these sorts of critiques? Yeah, that's a really good question, um, Beck, um, and certainly one I've thought a lot about over the last uh, three years, but a little bit of uh, background and context. Uh, so I was approached in 2019 by Fergus Hansen, who's the director of the uh, uh, International Cyber Policy Center, uh, which sits inside of um, ASPE, or the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, uh, but really has its kind of separate identity, I think, and, and in addition to concerns about uh, the way in which technology is um, is uh, you know eroding human liberties uh, across the globe. They've also taken an interest uh, in human rights issues. Um, uh, Fergus asked me if I'd be willing to lead up uh, the Xinjiang Data Project, which I agreed to do in the beginning of uh, 2012. Uh, over the last two and a half years, as you said, we've published um, six or five, and maybe six on its on its way. Uh, peer-reviewed uh, policy briefs uh, looking at various aspects of, uh, of uh, human rights abuses uh, in, in Xinjiang. Um, we've always been very transparent about the funding arrangements. Uh, I mean, ASPE as a, a Commonwealth entity files annual reports where you know, all its funding uh, is identified. The funding for the Xinjiang Data Project came uh, chiefly through a large project grant from the U.S. State Department, uh, but has also been supported by other governments, uh, chiefly the, uh, UK, uh, uh, the U.K. government through its uh, uh, Foreign Affairs Office. Um, I'm not a spokesman uh, for ASPE, and, you know, nor do I propose to defend it. Uh, all I can talk about is my experience working uh, with ASPE. Uh, I've worked with a fantastic group of young, highly talented, highly principled, uh, researchers uh, that uh, can draw upon a range of really innovative uh, methodologies. Uh, as I said, I've always tried, I guess I've always been quite promiscuous in my uses of met methodologies and uh, I I've enjoyed learning new ways of trying to study China from afar from uh, my uh, colleagues um, uh, with regards to satellite imagery that you were talking about. Um, my colleague at ASPE, Nathan Rooser, is really one of the world's leading experts of using you know, uh, imagery uh, to help find certain patterns. Um, we wouldn't have known the scale of China's mass internment uh, of Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslim minorities uh, without the use of satellite imagery. There's a, a Canadian uh, Chinese student, Sean Zhang, who really got this going back in well, 2017, and uh, Nathan has used it to identify over 300, I think 320 detention facilities, uh, which you can clearly see through you know, things like watchtowers, perimeter walls, um, things that you couldn't see if you were actually on the ground, um, because it, you need to look at it from, from above. But of course, that um, doesn't tell you. So you can identify that this is a high security uh, detention facility. That's quite clear by looking at the architecture. What you can't tell is what's happening inside, you know, and that's one of the real limitations. And there you've got to rely on eyewitness accounts, and we have quite a few now that have come out of, um, out of Xinjiang. Same thing for the other methodology that we use in terms of looking at open source information. So we've looked at um, Chinese government budget documents, uh, official uh, government reports, uh, media and social media reports. Um, you know, you're piecing together an incomplete puzzle, uh, but if you're persistent enough and kind of have uh, the ability to work against the kind of cat and mouse game, I mean, there are certain techniques of 
what you use um, uh, to, to be able to identify these sources, changing your IP address to get around the kind of counter firewall that the Chinese government set up. You can actually um, gain information on a range of, uh, uh, of sources. I mean, one report we did was looking at uh, family planning policies, and I was able to find these policy documentations that quite clearly uh, illustrated uh, the shift in policy and the attempt to you know, quite coercively uh, implement um, uh, family planning uh, in order to reduce the number of Uyghur uh, births. Um, and all those documents we've made publicly available. We go to great extent to archive everything so that we'll be there forever and really welcome people to engage with it and um, uh, tell us when they think we got it wrong. And, and we're open to, to engaging with that and looking at it. And we're, we're constantly going back and looking at the, the research we've done. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, I, I, I stand by it. I think we've done some great, really highly impactful research there. Well, we did get an email from somebody who thinks that it might be wrong. Um, so I'm going to pose this question that we received. Um, in light of the findings in CoWest Pro's paper regarding Dr. Leibold's Uyghurs for Sale report for ASPE, um, Jack would like to know if you still stand by your report. But before I turn to you, I've been a very negligent chair. I've just checked the time and the time has flown by. Um, I, but I do want to get some questions in before we wind the panel up. Um, so I would like to uh, invite the people who are in the room. Uh, do you have any questions? Um, my question is just about the uh, coerced and forced labour. I wonder if you could just talk a bit more about that transition that you're seeing. Um, where, where is it happening in China and uh, what are some of the companies that are involved? Thank you. Were there any other questions? Thank you for this very much. I'm ignorant, but I've noticed in the last year there have been reports of how China is reaching out to neighbouring states, Central Asia, Afghanistan and so on, um, extraordinarily in ways that show a willingness by the neighbouring states to marginalise the Uyghur population, the Turkish population, if you could run that past us and explain. Yeah, I might uh, go to the kind of um, issue of forced labour. Um, so just a bit of background, which I think is important. It was the first report I was involved in with ASPE. Uh, the report was called Uyghurs for Sale. Uh, it was published in March of uh, 2020. Um, it was a collaborative effort by a team of researchers at ASPE along with the Washington Post and its reporter Anna Fifield, who was, did some on the ground uh, reporting. Um, I, uh, the lead author was Vicky Shu, um, and I didn't do any of the original research, but I did do some of the writing and, and editing on the report. Um, as um, Jack James' uh, rather long uh, critique of the report points out, the report has really been incredibly impactful. I think it's been the most impactful piece of research I've ever been involved in. I had no idea at the time how much uh, attention it would generate. Um, it has uh, led to multinational companies from Nike to, uh, to Apple looking uh, more closely at their supply chains in China and to what extent they might be exposed to uh, weaker forced labor as well as forced labor more generally. I'd seen the divestment uh, of some companies uh, uh, from China. It's led, it's really one of the things I'm probably most proud of, what it did it was shift the onus uh, kind of away from governments towards uh, corporations as well as consumers to think about where our goods come from and wh under what conditions uh, they're, uh, they're made. Uh, it's resulted in legislation uh, parliamentary inquiries uh, uh, um, uh, across the, the, the globe. Um, with regards to the Jock uh, report, um, I mean, we've always welcomed critical engagement with all our reports. Uh, that one has resulted in numerous conversations that I've had with uh, companies, um, uh, with uh, NGOs, uh, with government officials. Um, uh, you know, we have revised the report. We've uh, removed some companies in some cases. We've issued uh, statements that companies have made. So we've, we've always engaged with it. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I don't think highly of the, 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 the Jock James report. I did read it uh, quite closely on the plane over. 
Um, I mean, frankly, and uh, you know, if I received that as a kind of honor stasis, I would really struggle to kind of pass it. It's uh, it's sloppy. Uh, you know, example. You know, referring to Xinjiang as a province, as a ra- rather than an autonomous region. I mean, numerous things like that. Uh, it's uh, you know, it's also uh, filled with you know disinformation, clear disinformation. Uh, it, uh, it it gets all sorts of facts wrong. Uh, it speculates that there is some kind of collusion that we tried to conceal between ourselves and the Washington Post, which clearly wasn't the, the wasn't the case. Um, you know, its overall argument is that we've somehow harmed the human rights of Uyghurs, uh, but not by denying them the right to to work. Um, nowhere, and if anything, we were quite explicit about. Uh, not having a kind of knee-jerk reaction that might lead to Uyghurs being put in, into even more harm. Uh, simply wanted to put the onus on companies to make sure these things uh, weren't, uh, weren't, weren't occurring. It takes issue with a lot of the language you use, you know, like is it, is it a watchtower or is it a viewing box? I mean, these, these are really kind of inconsequential issues where the main issue is about the fact that the, this export labor supplier program uh, clearly exists. It's a long-running policy. It's part of China's poverty alleviation policy under Xi Jinping. Um, and the exporting of Uyghurs, whether they be internally or externally uh, to factories elsewhere in China, is a long-standing policy uh, that has continued. Um, and we wanted to shed some light on it. Uh, and as I said, shift the onus onto companies and consumers to think about uh, where uh, where their goods uh, come from. So I might leave it at that, but I've got other things I, I could say on it. Um, and uh, I'll let Michael respond to either of those. I think Jim's answered that the first one you know, very well, but I'll just add uh, as well that um, you, know, you just have to look at the Chinese Communist Party's own documentation here. Um, you know, there's a number of examples we can pull out, certainly from the, the leaked uh, cache of, of documents from 2019, um, where there's explicit calls for, for instance, population transfers from the south of Xinjiang to other parts of the region or also other parts of China as part of poverty alleviation, but it's also explicitly linked to re-education. Uh, and, and this is also in China's white paper on so-called vocational training in Xinjiang of 2019, where it makes very clear the party's thinking here is that there's a linkage between what it sees as underdevelopment in Xinjiang and, and security challenges. And so the link here is you need to break the link between uh, identity and security, and you do this via transferring population and, and various forms of either coerced or perhaps what you might call indentured uh, labour. So it's, it's there in what the Chinese Communist Party is actually saying. Um, I think that's really important to, to note. In terms of the, the question about uh, Central Asia and Afghanistan, um, if, if I'm getting, getting you the, the gist of your question correctly, you're sort of asking about um, China's, uh, what you might term, transnational repression of, of Uyghurs. This, this is, isn't, isn't new. It's been going on for, for a number of decades, certainly since the early 1990s. Um, where China has utilised its leverage, certainly in the post-Soviet Central Asian states, uh, for instance, to to pressure the Uyghur diaspora. So there's a large Uyghur diaspora in Kazakhstan and some also in Kyrgyzstan. Um, These have been systematically repressed in various forms and times uh, due to pressure by the Chinese Chinese government. Um, And the issue in Central Asia and also perhaps Afghanistan more recently is, is really the distinction between the public and elites. So in Central Asia, uh, existing political elites are very much, they're fine with uh, repressing uh, Uyghurs and they're not going to make a great big stir about uh, that with Beijing. They're very much aware of the leverage that China has economically. Uh, Certainly, for instance, Kazakhstan, uh, the the rate of Chinese investment, its investment in its oil and gas industry, uh, and its various investments in infrastructure as part of the Belt and Road uh, initiative. So uh, these these issues are of long standing. Yeah, I just might add very quickly to what Michael said. I mean, in addition to that kind of elite capture that we clearly see, uh, not only in Central Asia but also parts of the Middle East. Just just look at Erdogan, um, who in um, two thousand and nine referred to uh, cultural genocide occurring in Xinjiang 
after the Arumchi riots to some of his more recent comments. And you can kind of see the way in which, you know, Turkey's economic uh, interdependency with Beijing has resulted in a, a shift of his uh, rhetoric. But the other thing I think is really important to point out is that Beijing has really worked overtime to create kind of plausible deniability for these officials by creating a, a kind of counter narrative. I mean, it's worth also remembering that, you know, for the first um, almost two years, they denied the existence of uh, mass internment centers um, uh, in Xinjiang. But when they did come out in uh, late 2018 and admitted they existed, they had a they had a counter narrative. These were benign vocational training centers that uh, people uh, were being sent to for minor uh, offenses or concerns about extremism, um, and you know they were they were learning uh, not only uh, how to be patriotic citizens and speak Mandarin Chinese, but also vocational skills that were then going to be beneficial for them. And um, there have been a lot of visits, uh, you know, they've organized these, um, you know, very carefully orchestrated visits for foreign diplomats and, and journalists uh, to kind of show this really sanitized view of what was uh, occurring inside these, uh, these centers. Now, I realize I'm going to take us over time, but I'm hoping you'll indulge me uh, because I would like to get a couple of questions from the online audience because I see that there are quite a lot that have been put in the Q&A. Um, the first question I'll ask is, can the speakers comment on the extent to which current circumstances in Tibet and for Tibetans replicates or diverges from repression uh, in Xinjiang. I might actually add to that question. Um, one of the first times I encountered uh, what was going on in Xinjiang was when I first, uh, I was very new at La Trobe and James, you did a presentation on state surveillance and Xinjiang. So uh, I know that you have done a lot of research on the use of state surveillance um, by the Chinese Communist Party. So I wanted to add to that question, um, to, to what extent uh, has, the, has the model been tested in Xinjiang for state surveillance and is then going to be applied to other communities, but also more generally across the, the, the mainland? Uh, and a second question uh, from Professor Kauri Okano. Hi, Kauri. Um, to what extent has the CCP's discourse on Uyghur as deviant, pathological, etc., been accepted by ordinary people in China? Uh, and are there any differences in terms of rural and metropolitan areas uh, or other regions or social class? So I might start with you, James. Well, those are two uh, big questions. Uh, and just on the, the first one, um, I'm a little bit reluctant to draw direct parallels, but what is happening in Xinjiang and Tibet or Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia um, you know, there's there are clearly parallels when, you, when we're talking about surveillance, um, community control. I mean, we can see some certain trends uh, of uh, party rule under Xi Jinping, uh, a strengthening of grassroots controls, uh, a penetration of the state uh, down into the, the very local level, uh, the use of both human and uh, automated surveillance. Those are, those are happening across China, not, not only in, in the frontier regions. Uh, but what we're not seeing is, you know, a, a kind of mass internment approach. Um, you know, it, I, I looked very closely at what was happening in Inner Mongolia after there was some language protests in 2020. Um, and they had a kind of a, a, a sort of re-education process light where people in their work units were required for a month to attend classes. You know, there weren't uh, residential classes and they'd go home at night and they had to pass a test at the end. You know, so you could see that as a form of free education, but it's quite unique to the, the Inner Mongolian context. And a lot of other things that are quite unique. I mean, China's a very big, uh, fragmented uh, authoritarian state. And, and so policies are, are implemented and enacted in slightly different ways. I mean, one of the things that, that Xi is trying to do is to centralize that. And to centralize authority and policy making in its very, you know, hands in in, in Beijing, but that's, that's easier said than done. Um, so I, you know, I, I, rather than draw parallels, I'd say, you know, let's look uh, particularly what's happening um, in Hong Kong or Tibet or in Mongolia. Um, I might let Michael um, pipe in, and I'll reflect on Cowrie's question because I need to read it again. Yeah, like I mean, the only thing I'd add to, to sort of Jim's response there is that I think 
And this, I think, this is implied in what, he, what he's saying is that what makes the Xinjiang situation unique in terms of the rest of China, I think, is the, the scale um, of, of the current repression um, is, is what makes it yeah, unique and makes it, I think, um, certainly confronting. Um, but in terms of you know, certain trends of policy, I think it's also interesting to think about you know, what's termed you know, top-level design in the, the Chinese system is that you can actually see sort of forms of policy experimentation even with the re-education process um, that sort of then get filtered back up the chain and then decisions are made about what in fact is going to be rolled out uh, throughout Xinjiang. Um, so there is that sort of process of policy experimentation and maybe we're seeing some of that in, in Inner Mongolia or even, even Tibet as well. And, and just to Kauri's um, question, which I've had now a chance to, essentially, what do Han Chinese people think about what's happening in Xinjiang? Well, very hard to generalize, you know. Um, I think there are a diversity of views. Some people are horrified, uh, other people uh, accept the, the government's justification. Um, I mean, I, I spoke before about Islamophobia, which is really a, a global problem. Uh, China certainly has a problem with that. I mean, the Uyghurs, uh, unlike uh, many other ethnic minority groups, uh, are racially distinct. Uh, dif- they find it difficult to pass as Han Chinese, and so there's been uh, a long history uh, of racism towards Uyghurs. Uh, you know, in the past, they were seen as uh, as uh, pickpockets or um, you know thieves that couldn't be trusted. Uh, now they're seen as kind of uh, Islamic madmen that, 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 that are dangerous. Um, I think a lot of people hold those views, uh, but as I said before, there are many, there are many Han Chinese who are, uh, that look uh, uh, at what's happening in Xinjiang or in Hong Kong or in Tibet and, and, uh, and are shocked by that. Um, and they're concerned about the direction that China has gone under Xi Jinping. Uh, the challenge is, uh, or, or, or the problem is, their ability to speak out. Um, you know, we tried very hard, uh, as you know, Beck, to get a, a, a panelist to provide a different point of view for this event, um, and we're unsuccessful. And I think that's really unfortunate. Uh, you know, now um, Chinese colleagues to speak uh, at a public event or to attend an international conference need to have the approval of party officials at their university. Um, and, you know, that's not good for robust debate and exchange. I agree, and I think that we need to be having further conversations about issues of academic freedom, and and you mentioned earlier, Michael, issues of self-censorship and what that means for our ability to understand China and our region. But I'm afraid I've taken us past the time. Uh, I wish, James, that I could speak as coherently as what you do after a 30-hour, 40-hour trip back from the United States. Uh, But thank you very much, Michael, for coming and visiting us in Melbourne. Uh, And thank you, James, for joining us. And thank you to our audience online uh, and in the room here at the La Trobe University City Campus. Um, This hybrid event has been recorded. And if you have registered uh, for the event, you'll be emailed the appropriate links when they are ready. Our next La Trobe Asia event will be taking place on the 28th of April. That's an online event with Professor Dewey Fortuna Anwar, uh, who is going to launch our Indonesia in Focus seminar series. So we have uh, a six-week seminar series uh, coming up uh, that looks at uh, a variety of issues um, concerning Indonesia, uh, delivered mostly by our experts at La Trobe University. So we're very excited about that seminar series. Uh, Please follow us on Twitter at La Trobe Asia or join our mailing list to find out more details for online events and publications. But thank you again for joining us tonight.